So I have zero expectations going into the mountains. I'm like, wow, the car started. We're leaving town. Great. Let's celebrate that. Okay, guys, everyone celebrate. We celebrate every moment, you know, because there's so much uncertainty to go on a Himalayan expedition. Hello, everyone. Shanti here. Welcome to another episode of the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Today, we continue our winter safety series deep dive. When it comes to successful backcountry travel, sometimes the hardest thing you must do is make the decision to turn around. This fall, Mountaineers Luke Smithwick and Ian Kuo teamed up to attempt an unsupported ascent and the first complete ski descent of Dalagiri, the seventh highest mountain in the world. After years of scheming, investing large sums of money, time, and training, not to mention traveling all the way to Nepal, lugging all of their own gear up to base camp, and then living in a single-wall alpine tent while acclimating on the mountain, Luke and Ian were forced to make the painful decision to turn around just shy of their goal. On today's show, we're going to hear why and how Luke and Ian turned their backs on this 8,000-meter peak with the summit in sight. They also dish out invaluable tips on how to avoid the perils of summit fever yourself. But before we get to Mary's and Abby's convo with Luke and Ian, I just quickly want to tell you about one tool to help you make sound choices in the backcountry, Gaia GPS. You're going to want to check out the brand new Gaia Winter Map, which is designed to pair perfectly with Gaia's suite of winter maps, including slope angle shading, avalanche forecasting, and hourly snowtail weather reports. And in order to check that all out, you got to have a Gaia GPS Premium membership. And since you're listening to this podcast, you're going to get a special deal. Right now, if you go over to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast, you can get a special 40% discount on a Gaia GPS Premium membership through the end of 2021. That's G-A-I-A-G-P-S.com slash podcast to get a special 40% discount on a premium membership with Gaia GPS, the gold standard of offline backcountry navigation. But first things first, let's toss it over to Mary and Abby as they talk with Luke and Ian. Luke and Ian, so good to see you guys. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to see you too. Thanks for having me. Don't sound quite so enthusiastic. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. It's my first podcast. Oh, Isn't wow. it really awesome? Well, we know it's not Luke's because he's been on this show before, but it's good okay. to have you guys back here in the States. Just to get started, we just need a, a little introduction. Who are you guys? Ian, why don't you give us a little sentence about who Luke is? And Luke, if you could give us a little sentence about who Ian is. So I can say anything about Luke that I want? <laughs> anything. I think you guys have spent some time in a tent together recently. So this is your chance. Yeah, just a little. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I would say in one sentence, Luke is a very experienced Himalayan climber and skier. He's probably, you know, given that he spends most of his year over there in places like India and Nepal and Pakistan and China, climbing and skiing in the Himalayas, probably one of the more experienced Himalayan skiers out there today. And someone that I've been looking forward to getting out and skiing with. And uh, we finally made that happen this fall on Dalagiri in Nepal. Luke, go ahead. That's my go. Okay, thank you. Uh, Ian is a photographer and ski mountaineer based in Jackson Hole, and he's done expeditions all over the world in South America, up in Alaska, here in North America, in the Himalayas, and uh, I was psyched to do the expedition we just did with him in Nepal. How did you two get to know each other? 
we talked a lot. We messaged over the years because we have a lot of uh, similarities and interests. And so, you know, a lot of my projects that I do personally, we get together to do projects and come together and do it, not knowing each other super well, but having the skill sets and the experience to do so. And Ian and I did hang out before the trip some and got outside some. We haven't done a ton of things together and we both had a a desire to go to this peak. So that's how it came together. So wait, you two live near each other though, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. We live just on opposite sides of Teton Pass. So it's about a 30 or 40 minute drive, but it can always be hard to connect with people. But that said, I, I've been watching a lot of the things that Luke has been up to uh, in the Himalaya for the past few years. And yeah, we've been chatting about various things and it took us a while, but we finally connected. And so you said that you just came back from an expedition in the Himalaya. Tell us about that. What were you doing over there? So yeah, early September, uh, Luke and I both flew over to Nepal, which I think since then they've dropped their quarantine requirements for vaccinated travelers, but that in itself was quite the logistical fiasco. And we went over there to attempt the first complete ski descent from the summit of Dalagiri. Uh, Dalagiri is an 8,000 meter peak in the Himalaya. It's the seventh highest mountain on earth. A number of people have been over there to try to ski it in the past. No one has quite gotten it from the summit. So that's what we were shooting for. So you left in September. When did you get back here? We got back early to mid-October. I don't remember the exact date, but we were over there for at least a month, I think. You mentioned it would be the first complete ski descent of Dwalagiri, which is the seventh highest peak in the world. What gave you this wild idea to pursue this peak? What was the inception of this project? I've looked at this mountain for a long time from every aspect uh, over the past 10 years, and I was completely in love with it. It's just this beautiful sail that juts out of the, the center of north central Nepal, and it just calls you. It's just so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> from my perspective, um, it was a little bit of a last minute trip for me, actually. I think like Luke just said, it's something that he's been looking at and thinking about for a long time. Um, and when he invited me to come along, I was super stoked. And even though typically I would spend a lot of time thinking about something like this, um, I also think that you never want to let good opportunities pass you by when they come up. So when he extended the invitation, I kind of shifted my plans around and Actually, I quit my job and uh, just took <laughs> off for Nepal. Wait, so, wait, what? You quit your job? I did. Yeah. Well, I, I've kind of structured my life for the past <laughs> few years pretty much around skiing and mountaineering. Jackson is a big tourist town, and there are a lot of uh, opportunities to work in the service industry and the restaurant industry that people kind of come and go. It's a pretty transient place. So I don't think anyone was super shocked when I said I was leaving for Nepal and turned in my two weeks notice. <laughs> Sounds like a true ski bum. <laughs> Yeah, that's another way to say it. <laughs> so Luke, you had mentioned like you were in love with this peak. You'd seen it from every aspect. What is it about this peak in particular? Is there something about it, like the way it looks? Does it have just delicious looking lines on either side of it that you just really want to ski? What is drawing you to this peak? Dalagiri is very well guarded. Like every aspect is quite hard to get up. Um, but on the northeast side, there's this little prowl little ridge that goes up that's just this perfect ski line and so when you look at it it's just aesthetically pleasing and if you were to describe this perfect line what kind of pitch would the whole line look like if you could kind of visualize it for us uh, it's, it's just a giant ridge that runs from twenty six thousand feet down to about fifteen thousand feet 
could be a little bit off there. Um, and then on down to an ice fall down to base camp. And so just a prominent ridge line that really is the only weakness um, on the peak. So that stands out for that reason. Yeah. And I think just to add on to that, like Luke said, it's a very well guarded mountain. And so the bottom half is very broken up um, in terms of the glacier and the crevasses and the ice fall. And so when you look at pictures of the Northeast Ridge, which is the line we went to ski, it's just, it's striking how direct it is. And I think that, you know, you do have to get past the ice fall and, and cross the glacier in the beginning. But once you get up onto the ridge, it's also attractive because there's not as much crevasse and overhead hazard on the ridge itself which I think is also probably the reason that it's the standard climbing route on Dalagiri is because it's relatively more approachable and a little less exposed. You two had never really met before this trip. How did it go once you were committed in person? Uh, we, we communicated a lot beforehand and we did hang out here in town and we did get outside a little bit. But I've done this quite a bit with folks I haven't had a lot of experience with in terms of like personality things, because I know that Ian had the skill sets to do it and the experience. So it was really just our, you know, figuring out, yeah, we were in this tight little alpine tent at times. <laughs> it was trying. <laughs> and uh, it, it, I think it went pretty well. Yeah, I think we, we both have good expedition personalities because really expeditions bring out um, the true colors sometimes of people. And so uh, it's good to have patience with people on a daily basis with each other, with your climbing partner, ski partner, and realize that some people are going to have tough days. Uh, some days one person may feel more tired or more fatigued or dehydrated or whatever it is and just working together towards that long-term common goal. Yeah. And when Luke talks about it being a tight squeeze in a small two-person alpine tent, if you don't know him, he's like 6'2". So <laughs> it was definitely a little bit tight in there. But no, I also thought it went great. And uh, in terms of going with someone who you haven't spent a ton of time with in the mountains or who you don't know super well, at least from my perspective, I knew that based on the past 20 years of his life, Luke is super dedicated to these sorts of pursuits. And I think that people who are passionate about the mountains and who are willing to go to places like the Himalaya for a month at a time to pursue these goals are, it typically draws kind of a, a like-minded group of people. And so I kind of trusted in that and I, I thought it worked out great. I think it says a lot about both of you that not only were you willing to do this together, having not spent that much time together, but then it, that it went so well. I feel like that would go well on a resume for personality traits. <laughs> so we're curious, what is training and getting ready for a trip like this entail? Ian, please. Well, for me personally, uh, as things have gotten more serious over the years, and I started to go on these expeditions for weeks at a time to places like Patagonia and Alaska and Nepal, you know, initially I was just going out ski touring casually uh, with friends. At some point, it just became time where I realized that if I wanted to ski from above 6,000 meters, I would have to have a little bit more of a regimented, serious training program. And so for the past couple of years, I usually train six days a week. I work with a company called Uphill Athlete, which was created by Steve House and Scott Johnston, if you know those guys. But it's pretty much a year-round full-time pursuit. So in the summer, when you're in Jackson, what does your training look like? It's a lot of aerobic base training. I, one of the biggest components of training for high altitude mountaineering of any kind is, is just endurance. Um, and so there's a lot of low intensity, long duration uh, workouts. So in the summertime, it's usually running or hiking. 
I use like a heart rate zone method of training. So I, I wear a watch and a heart rate chest strap so I can monitor what my heart rate is. And I'm trying to typically stay in for an aerobic workout like that. Um, so for tuning up that kind of upper line, higher heart rate, uphill sprints, um, flat sprints, and and then there's also like muscular endurance stuff in the gym, I would say is the third component. You guys are speaking Abby's language right now. I'm just telling you. I'm curious. So you mentioned the strength component. I imagine that has to be so important given that you're carrying all your own stuff, right? Up to base camp, at least. Is that, I guess we'll get there at some point in this interview, but. Yeah, I guess I should have hit on that a little harder. Um, Typically, the closer I get to an expedition, I'll start doing those weighted carries with a 50, 60 plus pound pack for like an hour at a time up a steep grade. Um, Teton Pass is great for that. You can drive up to Mount Glory and go on a one hour hike that's pretty much straight uphill uh, with a heavy pack. And that's definitely a huge component on something like what Luke and I just attempted, where it's just the two of you and you're carrying all of your own tents and food and all that sort of thing. Um, you just, you got to be prepared for that for sure. Okay. So you guys leave the States. Now walk us through the travel logistics. Um, yeah. What does it take to get to the bottom of Dalgiri Peak? Well, first you need to uh, get a visa to Nepal before you go. Uh, you need to have a negative COVID PCR test for travel. Uh, you get those done, you get to Nepal, you get a permit to go to the mountain and then you leave Nepal and you can drive or fly to the city of Pokhara to the west of Kathmandu. And then from there, you drive on a gnarly jungle road up through the Kaligandaki Gorge, which some people claim or technically is the deepest gorge on earth because you have Annapurna on one side, Dalagiri on the other. When you get to the village of Marfa and then from Marfa, you go straight up literally out of the Kaligandaki Gorge, and you walk for several days to get to uh, base camp for Dalagiri. And your photos suggested that you stopped at some places before you got to base camp. Absolutely. On approach to a high peak like that, you're you're going up to uh, 16, 17,000 feet sometimes in base camps. So you need to make a slow approach and allow your body to adjust the altitude as you approach that elevation. Whereas when we were leaving base camp, we were able to come back down in a day. And just You have to take time to, to get up to that elevation. Just to add on to that, in terms of like stopping along the way to take pictures, it really sounds like a quick summary when you kind of just talk through the steps of what it takes to get to the base of the mountain. But it takes weeks uh, to get from home in the United States to the base of the peak, uh, multiple flights, there's like an eight to 12 hour Jeep ride on roads in Nepal that they're not paved. And especially going at the tail end of the monsoon season, depending on how many landslides there have been across the road, you might have to stop for a few hours or you might get stuck overnight. For us, it was only a few hours on a couple different occasions on the way out there. Um, so I think that just to get to the base camp, if you get there and you haven't lost any of your gear and everyone on your team is healthy, that's almost like 50% of the hurdle of having a successful expedition. So once all your stuff's at base camp and you're not sick, it's, it's almost like a sigh of relief, the first sigh of relief of the trip. And then the other thing I would just throw in about the approach to Dalagiri is Luke mentioned the Kaligandaki River Gorge being super deep. And so it's actually challenging for acclimatization because you have X number of miles, maybe it's like 20 miles to trek in to get to base camp. But 
all of the elevation gain is within the first like two or three miles because you come straight up out of the gorge on the approach to Dalagiri. So in terms of acclimatizing, it's a little bit tough because you want to get moving and covering some distance, but you also kind of need to slow down in those first two or three miles and just kind of go halfway up and then sit there for a day or two and then continue on your trek. So it's a little bit different than some of the other approaches that I've done, at least. I can relate to what you're saying about it being such a short distance and a quick elevation gain, because on the map, it didn't look like a long distance. When I looked on Gaia Topo from town up high, it's just short distance on the map, but you could tell there was a lot of elevation gain in there. I did notice that the, the map was pretty filled out for that area. You could see different trails around the town that you had mentioned. It showed base camp for Dalagiri on the Gaia Topo map. Is this a well-traveled area? I mean, did you see other people up there? It's popular for trekking, and I think that way may be why it's been populated on the map there. People like to trek around Dalagiri um, and then also just up to base camp and back down. Were there any other mountaineer groups on the mountain when you were there? Yes. I was just going to add on that, that the other reason that you can see the trail and, and the base camp marked on the mountain is because I, I think that basically all of the 8,000 meter peaks are getting popular these days. Um, I mean, we've all seen the lines that are on Everest, but, you know, for people who are dedicated mountaineers, tagging all 14, there are 14 8,000 meter peaks on earth and to summit all 14 of them is considered a great achievement. And so I think these days there are quite a few mountaineers who are kind of doing the circuit, kind of like the seven, seven summits. And you definitely see quite a few other climbers on the standard route on an 8,000 meter peak. It sounds like a far more extreme version of our issue here in Colorado with the, the 14ers. You go to a peak that's 13,995 and there's nobody on it. And then next door it's 14,01 and there's like 50 people on the summit. Absolutely. It's a magic number. So you guys were there in late summer. I mean, really early fall. Is this the time to be skiing in the Himalaya? Yeah, that's the time for extreme altitude skiing in the Himalayas. If you just want to ski 8,000-meter peaks, then in Nepal and in Tibet, at least, it's going to be in the post-monsoon season, so September, because you get a lot more snowpack up that high after the monsoon as opposed to after the winter. But with that said, if you go to Pakistan, to the Karakoram, are you going to want to go in the summer months? It's kind of different than we think about here skiing for sure. So Luke, uh, you were already on the podcast once to talk about your Himalaya 500 project. I'm curious, is this peak part of that project as well? Absolutely. Yeah. I was This year I was over in Pakistan for four months and then skiing a bunch of lines in different regions of the Pakistan Karakoram. And then yeah, this, this peak as well is part of the project. Can you just kind of summarize the project for us? I know you've been at this project for a number of years and kind of tell us what it is and where you are in completing the Himalayan 500. The Himalayan 500, it's an arbitrary number I picked just to ski as, as many lines as I could in different regions of the Himalayas and really highlight just how unique it is, like all the different snow climates across the range, all the different geology, I mean, all the different culture that you encounter in all these places. I really think it's a destination for skiing. It's really growing. You know, there's people starting to ski and Locals started skiing in the Nepal Himalayas, and people have been skiing in the Kashmir Himalayas since the 50s. And then in the Indian Himalaya, they've been skiing since the 
uh, late 1800s. So I think it's going to grow, though. We have the Olympics coming to China, and I think that the Himalaya will be a destination for people. It's kind of like you go to Singapore, you go to uh, Manila, and it's like uh, it's like flying from the East Coast to the Rockies. So I see it being a destination for skiing in the future. So I just want to grow the skiing community in the Himalayas and infrastructure for it. So that's the goal of the project. How many lines have you skied so far? More than half. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> and are you documenting these things? Is there like a book somewhere where we're like yeah, Luke's so, 250 ski yeah, lines in the Himalaya? I'm using Gaia GPS. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. And so are you record your track and, and just keep a catalog of what you've yeah, skied? Tracks and waypoints and all kinds of things. Hey, there's a spring here. This is, you know, all kinds of stuff that I record along the way as I go. Amazing. I mean, if you were to characterize it as a sum, like as a whole, like what kind of skiing are we looking at? You name it. The Himalayas has it all. It really does. You can ski coulars, big granite coulars that are, you know, three times the size of what we have here in the Tetons. You can ski old growth cedar forest in Kashmir with waist deep snow. You get these storms in Kashmir that come over from the Mediterranean. It's called a Western disturbance and it'll deposit one to three meters of snow in a storm. Just so much snow comes to the western Himalaya. And kind of as you work east towards Everest, you have less and less snow on the ground in the winter months. But with the monsoon I was talking about, you have quite a lot of snow above 6,500 meters during the monsoon. So I get quite a bit there, but down below that, there's really not a lot of skiing. You know, I think in a 20-year period in the Kumbu and the Everest region, they've been able to ski a handful of times. So it's really not that often unless you're skiing on glaciers. So let's Is see. it all super high? You know, I think of the Himalaya, I think of, oh my gosh, you're going to be up at 20,000 feet sucking wind. Is oh. it all like that or can you ski down lower too? In the winter, it's kind of like a base, you know, like the lift in, in Gulmar and Kashmir, it goes up to 14,000 feet, you know, just like just like Arapaho Basin. So uh, it's at those elevations, uh, 8,000 to 14,000 feet for skiing. So very similar to the Rockies. And so I really think that's a, a destination for powder skiers is Golmark, Kashmir. And also uh, the Pure Panjal that run into Pakistan. Pakistan has so much potential for skiing in the winter at, at fun elevations. <laughs> so does this project include any other 8,000 meter peaks? It does. Yeah. In 2012, I went and skied Shishapangma and definitely there's a few others that I'm interested in skiing. I don't think all of them have full fun routes or interesting routes, but some of them are definitely appealing for skiing. So, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not looking to ski all 14, 8,000 meter peaks. I don't, I think that's a bit contrived. What about avalanche danger in this region? I mean, it's a huge area. Are you getting all different kind of um, avalanche climates? You know, like, you know, like we have continental snowpack here in the States, but then we also have a maritime snowpack along the states bordering the ocean, you know, like in California, Washington, and Oregon, and then totally different conditions in the middle of the continent in Colorado and Utah, Montana, Wyoming. Is it similar like that? Yeah, I would say like in Kashmir, for example, it starts out as continental and goes kind of more intermountain. Um, I think that, yeah, in terms of snow climates, you've got um, there and then you have, 
you know, the high desert of like Ladakh, where you're going to have storms, just, um, you know, a few major storms a winter, and then things just sit around and they just facet away. And, and uh, so it's a totally different, you know, snowpack and climate there. So there is a lot of variety across the range in, in that regard, for sure. I think it's important because we're talking about backcountry skiing here. If you two could kind of tell us, like, what is your experience with avalanche training and forecasting and safety? Can you give us your background? Yeah, definitely. For me, um, I've been backcountry skiing for about the past four years. Uh, Before that, I actually lived in New York City. Um, But for the past four years, it's pretty much been my my full-time pursuit. And uh, I'm avalanche recreational level two certified right now. I'm signed up to get my pro one this winter. And I'm also wilderness first responder certified. Awesome. I've worked as a avalanche forecaster. I'm in charge of a snow safety program for a 17 member ski patrol. I was in Kashmir and a ski patrol director and I'm an area instructor, which is the American Institute for Avalanche Research and Education which is a great organization to look to for avalanche instruction and uh, safe backcountry travel. I'm a member of the American Mountain Guides Association. I'm also a woofer that I maintain every couple years, and woofer just means wilderness first responder. Um, It's a great thing to look into for how to help out a buddy if they get hurt in the backcountry. So it's a great skill to have. There's wilderness first aid, which is like a two-day course, and then woofer I think is five days. And it's a great thing that you, you should have if you're going to go out and travel in the backcountry with your friends or, or, you know, professionally. So that's what a woofer is. And so that's what I do in terms of avalanche stuff. Ian, was this the, your first time going to the Himalaya? It was not my first time in the Himalaya. My first time was in 2019, a couple of years ago. I went over there to the Everest region in the Kumbu Valley and climbed a peak called Alma de Blom, which is about 6,800 meters, just via the standard route on the southwest ridge. That said, I didn't have any skis that time. If you look at a picture of the peak, you'll see why. I think it would be pretty tough to ski unless you were going to base jump with a parachute from the upper mountain. <laughs> and then other than that, I had also been over to Kyrgyzstan in a range called the Pamir, which is also a very high mountain range similar to the Himalaya and climbed a 7,000 meter peak over there. So I had a little bit of experience kind of in the region and in those high peaks, not quite as much as Luke, but at least enough to have a sense of what I was getting into and feel comfortable with taking on that objective. And then other than that, skiing in Alaska, I was on Denali in the spring. And then I actually was lucky and went down to Ecuador last year and skied a 6,000 meter peak down there, which is really cool. So I, I would say all of those things have kind of been feeding into and building up to this experience. If I'm being honest, I had probably planned on maybe another year or two before attempting an 8,000 meter peak. But like I said earlier, when opportunity knocks, I think that it's important to uh, take that leap. And I think all the skills were there and it's just a matter of uh, of confidence and yeah, building experience. This was your first time in that region. What did it make you feel like when you actually turned the corner and saw the mountain for yourself for the very first time? What was that like? Yeah. um, Well, I wish there had been that like turning the corner, see the mountain moment. 
Um, unfortunately, and we can get into this later, but the, the weather was a little bit less than ideal. So when we trekked in, turning that corner, that I didn't even know that the mountain was there, you know, because it was so cloudy. And there were intermittent periods of sunshine at base camp. And of course, I did eventually get a look at the mountain. I would say the thing that jumped out to me the most about it was just how broken up the lower mountain was and how much overhanging hazard there was on the lower half of the route. I think that to me, one of the most exposed parts of the entire trip is just making that journey from base camp across the glacier and past the icefall up to the saddle at the base of the Northeast Ridge, which is the line that we wanted to ski. You know, depending on how long it takes you to make that journey, you're spending eight hours just walking underneath these giant overhanging rocks the entire time. And the whole surface of the glacier is like, these big mounds of snow because it's it's debris, you know, from from previous straw collapse. So I would think that, yeah, the the feeling of seeing the mountain for the first time that's kind of what stood out to me. And you know, other than that, of course, it's it's a huge peak. Um, base camp's about fifteen thousand feet, and the summit is almost twenty seven thousand. So you know, you're looking up at twelve thousand feet of rock, ice, and snow, which is always intimidating, you know even if you have experience in the mountains. I think that if you're not, if you don't have a little bit of concern, you might want to take a step back. Yeah, it's an interesting point he brings up because like if you look at Mount Everest, you have the Kumbu Icefall and uh, people are just going through it and no one would go near the Kumbu Icefall if it was on any other mountain on earth, you know, but they're going through the Kumbu Icefall because it's on Everest, but it's the objective hazard. It's, it's very real, you know, it's very, very risky. And Dalgiri has similar danger in the icefall heading up. That kind of leads me to another question. You know, when you talk about Everest, I think of people going up there in big teams with Sherpa support and guides and oxygen as well. Did you use any support like that? We did not. You know, that was the goal. And while we log so much training, you know, year round, I think with a general level of fitness, uh, you can go to an 8,000 meter peak um, with Sherpa support and oxygen. Um, and basically how that works is they, they go up onto the mountain and they, they break a trail up to over a period of time to the summit. Um, and they place a fixed rope all the way to the summit. And then they establish uh, tented camps at different elevations as you go up the mountain. And so you move into that infrastructure and you have a relatively lighter pack um, and climb between those camps. And then when you get to the highest camp, you don an oxygen mask and, and go for the summit with uh, your guide. And so it, it is a different style of climbing than what Ian and I were trying to do because we were carrying all of our own stuff and, and climbing within our own contained team. So what were you carrying? We got some uh, pepperoni in Kathmandu. Remember, that was pretty good. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, man. I Yeah, I think by the time you finish filling your pack with stuff and then you pick it up, half the time you're like, what is in here that is making this so heavy? Um, but I guess a general overview of what we were carrying, uh, tents, sleeping bags, and, you know, on a peak like that, you need a sleeping bag that's rated to minus 20 Fahrenheit or lower. Um, on top of that, for an 8,000-meter peak, you probably want to bring a down suit. Um, which is basically like a wearable sleeping bag. Um, and it takes up a huge amount of space in your pack. And then you've got food for multiple days, which is often a really heavy component, water, um, camera equipment, if you want to take some pictures. And then all the usual mountaineering gear, so ice axes, 
you know, crampons. We're bringing protection in case we need to, you know, fix our own rope or pull someone out of a crevasse. So you've got the harness with the whole crevasse rescue kit, carabiners, um, a micro traction. Maybe you have a rappel device. And then if you want to ski down, of course, on top of that, you got to carry skis. And depending on how light you're going with your ski touring setup, that's probably another 10 pounds on your pack. Easy. So yeah, it really adds up quickly. It's a lot of stuff. And then maybe you're bringing solar panels in range for emergency communication, your phone. So that first trip up the glacier was, it was a haul for sure. And then once you start establishing your own camps up higher on the mountain, typically you're doing multiple acclimatization rotations. So ideally the second time you go up, you're carrying a little bit less because you left your tent and and some other stuff up there. Honestly, I'm surprised it was only 50 or 60 pounds. You think about what some people's backpacks weigh when they go through hiking in like the desert. It's remarkable, truly. How dangerous is that initial trek? I mean, you talk about Abbey debris, ice falls. It sounds quite harrowing. Going from base camp to camp one. Yeah, it's it's a lot of um, things are generally fun until it's possible that they aren't that doesn't make sense please cut that out (laughs) it's like no so you start out and you go up and you have to skirt around an ice fall very similar to the kumbu ice fall on everest Um, you go through this these slabs of rock to get above that and you get up onto there and then you're on the glacier itself and it is a crevasse field that you go across to come to like a second ice fall of sorts and you move up through seracs there and then finally up to the northeast coal of galagiri while you're doing that you've got these really giant towers of ice hanging above you that really have no rhyme or reason to when they're going to fall like it can happen any time of day or night they just decide to come down and so that has been an issue on on other peaks to my knowledge there's no history of people being um injured or, or killed on dog area in that area but it, it's definitely a possibility it's just a, it's a function of just being in the wrong place at the wrong time you know if you look at denali or you look at everest and you have a lot of numbers a lot of people up there you're gonna see people getting hit and they have been people have been killed on denali and on everest by by rockfall and icefall so yeah so you're basically saying that is a risk that you're taking kind of inherently by deciding to attempt this peak. Yeah, that's a risk that you have to take on if you're going to try to summit Dalgiri or Mount Everest or a lot of the 8,000-meter peaks or even lower elevation peaks. That is a risk that's there. So how long does it take you to navigate all this and get to your first base camp? Uh, let's see. What was it taking us to get to Camp 1, Ian? It's like six hours, six, eight hours. Somewhere in that range of six to eight, I would say. Um, especially that first time with those super heavy packs. Just to help paint the picture a little bit of what the overhead hazard is like, Luke talked about skirting around the ice fall and, and getting off the rock slabs and finally onto the, the glacier. That first part takes you know, two or three hours in and of itself. And usually when you're out ski touring or climbing or something like that, maybe you take a break every once or two hours. And uh, I think that first time we went up, I kind of caught up to Luke on the glacier and we were maybe thinking about getting our skis out and switching to skins. And it was kind of like a nice time to take a break. And Luke kind of looked at me and said, you know, 
I'm looking at this stuff above us, like these overhanging Ciroc's, and I just don't think we can stop here. And so you're moving for four or five hours continuously because there's nowhere that's a good place that's really a safe place to stop. So you get to your first base camp. Tell us what your plan was. What is the plan from there? Generally, you do two rotations on an 8,000-meter peak uh, before you go for a summit push. And a rotation is just moving up onto the mountain, tricking your body into starting to build red blood cells so it can tolerate being at at, at that high of an elevation to go to 8,000 meters. So we did our first rotation up there. And really on the first one, you're just checking out conditions on the mountain. And then you're heading back down to base camp and you're resting for a few days. Um, Then you usually go for another rotation of the mountain to a higher elevation and then come back down to base camp. And then you're ready for your summit push. And that's generally how it works on 8,000 meter peaks. Um, Some people use a different style where you go up for a single rotation and you spend a few nights. Some people call it like a Russian style. And so uh, those are kind of the the two ways that you climb an 8,000-meter peak. And so that's kind of what we were up to on our first rotation. And tell us how that went. How did it go for you? Did you make it? We made it. Great. We're both really happy to finally be on the mountain and, and moving and those some great snow. So we were psyched about the skiing and the views were spectacular to look out towards the Annapurna's. You could see some, some of the more, you know, wild peaks to the North towards Tibet and Mustang. And it was just a, a great, great thing to be up on the Northeast Cole of Dalgiri. And how did the weather look when you were up there? You know, Dalgiri is this vortex of terrible weather. It really is. <laughs> it's just, it's like, uh, you know, it has these layers. And so like a lot of times if you see a photograph of an 8,000 meter peak, there'll be this sea of clouds beneath it. When we were down in base camp, we were almost, seemed like almost all the time. It was like a handful of days that it was clear, but we were down in that soup, down in that fog. And once you get above 20,000 feet, 6,000 meters, roughly, you can see you're above that deck. It's like you're up. It's like you're. It's like when you're in an aircraft, but you know you're just on a mountain. They're just so large there in the MLS. <laughs> so the weather was challenging on this expedition, and historically, Dalgiri is notorious for that. Just lots of snowfall, and it's just it's a it's a fickle mountain that really takes uh, some real doing to to get to the summit, just because of how how bad the weather is, just wind and, you know, clouds coming in and out and snowfall and lots of snow water there. Given that weather, what odds were you giving a successful ascent and ski descent? That was my 78th Himalayan expedition in like the past decade. So I've come to a point where I try to be surprised instead of disappointed. So I have zero expectations going into the mountains. I'm like, wow, the car started. We're leaving town. Great. Let's celebrate that. Okay, guys, everyone celebrate. We celebrate every moment, you know, because there's so much uncertainty to go on a Himalayan expedition. And so I really had zero expectations. We went there and presented ourselves with all the fitness we put into it, you know, all of our own skills uh, we were prepared, and we went and saw what we saw and maintained our objective mindset to come home safe. 
you know, that's, that's the goal. I'm really personally, I play the long game. I want to be doing this when I'm old, when I'm in my sixties, <laughs> I still want to do this. So I'm not really willing to risk it for a mountain. Yeah. That's how it went. It was a great expedition. Well, let's hear about the rest of it. We haven't gotten the whole story yet. Um, yeah. So as Luke was describing, you kind of have to go up and down the mountain multiple times, which as you can imagine, takes a long time. Um, and so we did the first rotation, which was great. We established a camp up at camp one, uh, which was, you know, I think just below 6,000 meters from there, we climbed up a few hundred meters higher just for acclimatization and the skiing conditions were actually really nice, which was surprising. Um, because usually when you go to a huge mountain like that, I mean, I just, <laughs> similar to what Luke said, I'd rather be surprised than disappointed. So usually the conditions are not that great, uh, for skiing. And then we came down to base camp. And uh, I think to put, to make a long story short, you know, what ended up happening with the weather, which is typically bad on Dalagiri, is that we kind of ran out of time with the weather. And so we ended up being stuck at base camp for a few extra days in between those first two rotations that we wanted to do before a summit push. Um, it was raining frequently at base camp, and then it actually snowed um, all the way down to base camp. And so this, as you can imagine, since it was also raining, the temperatures were pretty warm, the snow is pretty wet and heavy. And uh, we definitely saw a few slides of fresh, loose, wet snow coming off the side of the mountain, which forced us to stay in base camp for a couple extra days to wait for that to settle. And then uh, by the time we went up for the second rotation, you know, we had a professional weather forecaster that we had hired so that we could have some visibility into what a summit window might look like. And uh, unfortunately, after a certain date, it really just looked like the winds were going to pick up um, and make the summit a very dangerous place to be, very cold and probably, you know, very risky to try to ski um, without being clipped into a rope. And so we went up for that second summit push. We climbed to about 6,700 meters um, before skiing back down. And I think really looking at the weather that was coming in, we eventually just had to make a decision about whether we were going to try to rush a summit attempt with no oxygen and no support and only one other person on your team to be there if something goes wrong um, or if we were going to call it. And uh, obviously we ended up calling it. Can you explain why it would have been rushing to attempt it just to, for us people on our couches over here in America? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I think that uh, in order to summit an 8,000 meter peak without oxygen, you want to be super well acclimatized. Um, and so based on our schedule of the rotations we had done and how many days we had spent on the mountain, I think we were shooting for a date of around October 5th or, or afterwards uh, for a summit push. And those high winds that I mentioned that were, you know, in excess of 30, 40 miles per hour were coming in around the 4th. And so you have to start, when, once you see that, you have to start cutting days out of your schedule here and there in order to make that work. Um, so that would have meant less rest days in between acclimatization rotation one and rotation two. And then again, coming down from rotation two, where ideally you're climbing to 7,200 meters, which is exhausting. And then coming down to base camp and cutting out another rest day um, or two, in just in order to move that timeline up. And like I said, with the snow that hit camp uh, after our first rotation, we lost a couple days there. And so now we're already a couple days behind schedule. And so in order to make that summit push, in the appropriate window, the number of day, rest days or acclimatization days that you have to cut out of your schedule in order to get there, it, it, 
just eventually reaches a level where it's unacceptable, right? I mean, you're going to be putting too much risk that you're either too tired to, to climb or ski safely. You know, if you fall skiing this line, there's a good chance that that's the last ski turn you ever make. Um, or you're not well acclimatized and you're going to get high altitude cerebral or pulmonary edema or some other form of high altitude sickness, um, which again is really not ideal up there. So, yeah. The, so the trick with cerebral edema or pulmonary edema is that if you get it once, you're predisposed to getting it again for the rest of your life. And so if you're rushing your acclimatization, uh, you're potentially, if you develop one of those illnesses, uh, you're, you're, you're kind of hosed for the rest of your life. Um, you're, you're predisposed to getting cerebral edema and pulmonary edema. And you're, in my opinion, a pretty scary partner to have. It's definitely food for thought that we really didn't want to rush things. And like I was saying about the long game, I want to be doing this a long time. We weren't really willing to rush and risk that because we both didn't want to develop those things. And it, But I should say you can pull it off. You know, you can get away with it, but that's not really... Um, the way things should go. Are you able to see the top of the peak from where you're camping? You can see it from base camp. You can see it. It's it's up there. It's it's so big. 8,000 meter peaks are just, yeah, so giant. I mean, how hard is it to make this decision? You're right there. You've invested so much training and so much planning into this objective. How difficult is it to resist that summit at that point? I would say it's very tough. To your point, you pour a ton of financial resources into it, time um, and effort. And yeah, to walk away is always hard. And, you know, obviously that's that's why people get in trouble in the mountains and in the backcountry frequently. Um, I will say I think it's gotten easier over the years. I think, you know, the more that you do it, the more different peaks, the more different scenarios you see, it starts to get a little bit easier to say, okay, well, you know, I did X, Y, and Z. I can let this one go, or I do this all the time, I can come back. That is much harder with an 8,000 meter peak, given that you have to dedicate a month or more to get there. So yeah, the, the answer is that it's tough. But like Luke said, if you want to be doing it down the line, you have to be able to make that call, I think. And I think you know, weather forecasting these days is, is so good. It's like I have friends in Boulder where you are, Abby. They're, they're rock climbers, and they can watch the weather in Patagonia, you know way, way far away. And they see that window coming and they'll fly down and, and get a route done. Whereas back in the day, climbers would sit there for six weeks waiting out wind and rain and 8,000 meter peaks are the same way. It's um, They've gotten quite good at forecasting at that elevation at, at 8,000 meters. So um, we had a pretty reliable forecast and it's either on or it's off. And it was not on for us. What did that conversation look like between you two? Um, we just didn't see it. And so it was a pretty simple conversation at Camp 2. We got our weather update and and we talked about how that would fit into coming up for Summit Push. And um, we went down to base camp to see if there'd be any change and there wasn't over a period of days. And so uh, that was it. We called it. So, yeah. Were you on the same page? <laughs> uh, yes, we were on the same page. Um, and I was also just going to say that I think the final conversation that was kind of the nail in the coffin was almost the less stressful part. I would, I think it was more, you know, in the days and weeks leading up to that, like seeing this forecast that, okay, on this day, it looks like the weather pattern is going to have a significant change 
Um, and after that, there are going to be these sustained high winds. And, you know, the weather has been bad and we're it's already pushing a, us a couple of days behind schedule. It, it was kind of like this long, drawn out process of, okay, this this looks like we will have to rush this if we want to get it. Um, and so I think that when we finally got to that, like, you know, here comes the weather. What are we going to do? It was a pretty straightforward uh, decision because we had been talking about it and thinking about it every day for the past week before that. So do you think you made the right decision? Absolutely. Yeah, I have no doubt in my mind. Allegheny's like that. I mean, there was people in base camp who had been there five times to try to summon it. <laughs> uh, it's just a, a fickle mountain that uh, it takes some investment. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, you know, we can jump into other things that you think about when you're assessing these risk decisions. But at the end of the day, any decision where you come home um, is probably the right one. And, you know, if I think about the two different, the two extreme outcomes, one being like, you know, Luke and Ian complete the first ski descent from the top of Dalgiri, and the other extreme being Luke and Ian die in an avalanche, it's not really a symmetrical risk and reward. It's a very, I would say, asymmetric downside risk where the the bad thing that could happen, when you think about it like that, it's, it's just not that hard of a decision. And to add a little bit of information, I there are other people who stuck around and uh, they were climbing with oxygen or they had Sherpa support and decided to push into those high winds. And some people did go to the summit. And uh, based on what I saw, it looked like it was extremely windy. And if you have an accident in those conditions, it's not going to go very well. And I also talked to someone who went after we left, and she said that on their way down, and this is secondhand information, I wasn't there, but she said that on their way down, there was a huge avalanche debris path that had wiped out the area where Camp One traditionally is. So based on what I saw and what I heard uh, from after we left, you know, again, you can always pull it off, you can get away with it, but I feel good about the call that we made. I really loved, I, both of you have such wise perspectives. And Luke, earlier you mentioned how success to you is coming home safely. That's such a powerful mindset shift. Because even uh, silly running things, I found myself getting caught up in summit fever, and then it starts lightning. And I feel like the day was a failure because I didn't get to do my whole run. But reframing it as no, it was a successful day because I made it home safely, then you're still feeling like you're winning the day. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And I mean, you guys are out there climbing an 8,000 meter peak and employing this decision making, kind of avoiding those human factor risks that are often taught in avalanche training courses. You know, there's snow science with avalanches, the more tangible things that you can measure and make predictions from. And then there's this other science that deals with psychology and the risks that people take regarding their decision making. Just what Abby was saying, you probably make these same decisions skiing around the mountains in Jackson and the Tetons. And maybe it might be on a smaller scale than Dalagiri, but you're still employing those same methods in the mountains. And I just kind of want to go through in the context of this FACETS acronym that they teach you in your Abby courses. There's this acronym that's out there, um, facets with familiarity, acceptance, consistency, expert tracks, and social. 
Maybe if we just went through each one of those and kind of use those as like an example and how you handled those, maybe people can learn. I'm sure I could learn from you and how you made those decisions. So let's just talk about the first one, familiarity. This is a kind of the concept like, oh, I've skied this slope before and it hasn't avalanched and therefore it's got to be stable at this time. I was forecasting in Kashmir. I put out a forecast. It was February 11th of 2015. Put up forecast that if you go into the backcountry today, you may trigger an avalanche that you will not survive. And someone came to the top of the gondola and I explained it to them. And they said, I grew up here. I've lived here my entire life. I've skied this bowl after every storm. I'm going to be fine. And he left and he went to that bowl and he triggered a D4 avalanche, which is large enough to, to, uh, destroy a train very large and he lost his life and uh it was a human factor moment it was a big moment for Kashmir to lose someone in an avalanche it was the first person from the valley there to to die in an avalanche in Golmark. and i really think that always comes back to me when i think about the familiarity human factor the f of the facets but to get back to dog Erie, and Sure. Obviously, there was no familiarity with Dalagiri specifically, but I do think that the familiarity concept also extends beyond just skiing the same exact slope that you have skied in your backyard every day. For me, I typically go on a couple of these expeditions a year, and, and Luke goes on many more than that. And I think when you spend a lot of time in the mountains in general, there's a feeling of familiarity. Like, I do this all the time, and I've done this so many times, and nothing has gone wrong. And so, I think that that familiarity feeling, it's always there if you're someone who lives to to climb or to ski. And so it's even if you're in a new zone, it's still something to think about. Yeah, I think for me, I, I may be prone to it a bit just because I've gone to the Himalayas so much that like I have this, I've had all these positive feedback loops. It's going to be fine this time as well because I, I know the area or know the place. And, and that's simply not the case. That's not how the mountains work. Okay, so the next letter in facets is acceptance. So for example, if I can make it to the top and ski down this giant mountain, then everyone, including my Instagram followers, sponsors, my buddies, they'll all be impressed. Did this factor play any part in your decision making? And be honest. Sure, definitely. I mean, I think that there's a reason that this factor is on the list. And it's because it's very hard to get away from it's very hard to avoid, especially in the modern age that we live in, where everything that you do is immediately publicly available information for everyone else online. Yeah, when you say that you're going to go over and, and try to do something like this, there's a lot of pressure there to impress people, um, whatever it may be. For me, a good way to counteract that is to think about the people who will be disappointed if you make that call for that reason, and then it ends up not going your way. I mean, there are people who will be impressed if you're successful, and there will be people whose lives will be destroyed or who will be extremely sad if you decide to push on and you die. Um, you know, this might sound silly or gross to some people, but I have a picture of my girlfriend on my home phone screen. And when I pull up my phone to check the route on Gaia or look at the weather forecast or whatever it may be, I see her. And if I don't come home, that's someone who's going to be devastated. It could be a picture of your parents. It could be a picture of your dog. 
but just think about kind of the other side of that. And, you know, the longer you do it, you'll see it happen, right? Like I've been with someone who got the text that their significant other died rock climbing. And I've seen what that does to someone. Just keep that in mind. Yeah. I think acceptance is huge. Like, you know, GoPro courage or, you know, doing it for the gram or whatever it is that you want to, yeah, you want to uphold some sort of reputation or, or whatever it is can really have dire consequences. I really think that sticking to a trip plan that you make in the morning uh, can help those help help those human factors, including acceptance. And I would imagine that sponsor contracts, the way they're written must be really important here. If your bonuses are based off of accomplishing certain objectives, that could perhaps lead to bad decision making. Is that something that that you guys think about when you're signing contracts? I would never get involved in, in something like that. That sounds, wow. <laughs> well, I guess maybe it's really different than running. In running, the bonus structure is entirely centered around performance. And I think that's bad in running, honestly, in a lot of ways. I think that makes sense. I mean, compared to like something where you can die. It's like if we, we would die if, you know, right. you know what I mean? It's just... Luke, you mentioned something about sticking to the plan. And I think this is where factor C comes in, the letter C and facets. Um, Consistency. This is kind of that summit fever. You know, I plan to climb Dalagiri. I told everybody about my plan, which I think it was pretty publicly known that you you and Ian were going to go over there and make an attempt at it. It's a really good plan. You knew it was a good plan. You trained for it. You spent a ton of time and money on it. You can see the summit from base camp and you just really don't want to go home without that summit. How did you keep from getting summit fever in this? I just maintain an objective mindset, you know, looking at the the variables involved out here, backcountry skiing and the Tetons, we're looking at the snowpack and it's more about the snowpack and the stability of it. Whereas with 8,000 meter climbing and skiing, it's uh, the wind, you know, the wind can cause frostbite or it's uh, visibility, being able to see and find your way. So uh, for me, it was just maintaining like, here's our, I have a person that, you know, was professionally forecasting for us. They're not present there, which is great. You know, they're sitting in another country quite far away, just presenting facts to us. And we use these facts to make our decisions, you know, and so there's no desire involved. It's just, it's just here they are and this is what's going on, you know? And so that really helps with, uh, with that. So. So are you saying like maybe for the people here in the States doing their backcountry skiing, you know, on the weekend or whatever, just keeping emotion out of that decision-making? Yeah. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how human that is. You know, we all, we get excited about skiing. It's fun. That's why we love to do it. I think it's really just maintaining a, a trip plan every morning. So in the morning, you look at all those facts. Here's the avalanche forecast for the day, which is a tremendous resource we have here in America in the you know, major population hubs for skiing. Um, you can look at that and say, here's the avalanche problems for the day. Here's the weather for the day. Here's our plan for the day. This is what we're going to do. And you never go beyond that plan. You know, so you always dial back, you never dial forward. So I would never try to ski something steeper or do something harder. I would only dial back my plan for the day. So I go out with a plan, we're going to ski this and we may, you know, dial it back a little, but we wouldn't. Uh, in strategic mindset, they call it 
step forward. You know, we're going to only step back. So just, yeah. That's great advice. Abby. And- just to jump in with, with regard to plans and, and consistency, I think, you know, we're talking about if you make a plan to go to Dalagiri, you know, how hard it can be to walk away from all the time you've invested in that. And, you know, the other thing is that most people have other plans in life. Um, and so when you're in a situation where you've got this plan that you've committed to and you want to follow through on, but in something like backcountry skiing or mountaineering, the consequence can be death if you, you know, decide to push the risk too far. Uh, something that helps for me is just to write down what my other plans in life are that I'm not going to be able to do if I don't come back. So like for me, it's again, like kind of corny, but at the beginning of every year, I write down a list of goals for the year. And this year there were 10 things on there. And the first two were ski mountaineering related. Um, and one of them was to ski a 7,000 plus meter peak, uh, which Dalagiri is obviously, but there were eight other goals on there that had nothing to do with ski mountaineering. And so I can look at those and think about those, or I can think about my future travel plans or, you know, my career aspirations and all of those things go away if you make the wrong call ultimately. And so I think if you, if you think about some of those other things, you can ask yourself, like, is this one goal that I have in front of me right now worth it for all the other potential plans that I have in my life? It's like what Luke, you were saying earlier about thinking about this more than just this season many seasons into the future. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good goal to have, yeah, to play the long game. So. so the next letter in this acronym is E for expert halo, which is the idea that you're traveling with somebody else who you know is an expert and that sometimes can be a crutch for not using your own decision-making and, and just going off of what what they say. And it seems like you both are so level-headed and thorough that this wasn't an issue, but can you talk a little bit about this? Have you ever been in a situation where this has happened? Totally. Yeah. Every morning, you know, putting out like at 4am, I would put together the, you know, the shot plan for the day to place explosives to remove avalanche hazard or reduce avalanche, avalanche hazard at a ski area. I would just always listen to the rookie ski patrollers the first year ski patrollers, because they have a perspective as well of something that you may overlook as you know the person in charge. And so research has shown that you'd be that person who speaks up in your group. You always ask questions, even if you have a guide or you have someone who's the, the most experienced person in your ski touring group, ask questions. If something doesn't feel right, maybe it isn't right. So maybe ask, I, I don't feel good about this and be willing to, to back away from it and be willing to say, but it's really warming up right now, or it's getting really windy. There's a lot of snow loading onto the slope right now, or I just don't feel good about this. That's okay. It goes back to acceptance where you have, you know, people who want to accomplish something or it's only, you only have one day in the weekend, you can get out. And so you want to ski this big thing and, you know, the expert halo comes into play and you really need to uh, question those people and be willing to say no to them. Yeah. Even if it's a guide or whoever. Is this something that you ever talk about beforehand? Like, being really upfront and clear that everyone's opinion matters. Because I could imagine getting in a situation where you want to voice your concerns, but that precedence hasn't been set, and so you don't feel comfortable doing so. 
Yeah, I do. Yeah, I always, I always vocalize that. Like, if you something doesn't feel good to you, or you're not comfortable about it, because at the end of the day, I always do a debrief with my friends, with whoever. When I'm out skiing, I say, "Where did you feel the least safe today?" And it's always surprising what people say. Not always, but it can be. Like you have someone say. I felt really uncomfortable when we came over that roll. I thought it was going to slide. I like to vocalize that in the morning, that we all have a, the same goal. We have the same plan for risk. We have the same emergency plan. We have the same rescue tools. And we're all on the same page, and we're willing to listen to everyone in the group. And so choose wisely. Choose your partners wisely. That's probably one of the easiest ways that you can help yourself be a little bit more conservative or a little bit more safe in the backcountry is just to go with people you know have a good head on their shoulders. Um, and if you're out skiing with someone who's constantly pushing the envelope and always wants to go for it, maybe you need to make that tough call to not ski with that person or not ski with that person as much anymore. Um, and in terms of the E and facets, expert halo, some people have a good expert halo. <laughs> like, I was thinking about this trip, for example, I mean, Luke has been skiing in the Himalaya for 20 years and he's still alive. So that to me was a great indicator. Like this is probably a person that I should be interested in getting out with. And especially on a big trip, this is someone who has been consistently making those decisions and coming home at the end of the day. The T and facet stands for tracks or scarcity. It's kind of that idea, the powder's so good today, I'm going to ski this slope because it's so awesome, even though I have this nagging concern in the back of my mind. And I know you guys talked about having some great conditions up there. Was there any part of you that had a hard time pulling yourself away from all that great skiing and just kind of the glory of skiing that peak first? No, no. I mean, skiing down from the camp rotations was fun, but... Uh... There's just so much hazard. Those crevasses everywhere. And was, uh, a lot of seracs too. And, uh, you know, scarcity is huge. Here, ski touring in the Rockies and the Tetons, everywhere in America, like it's the weekend, it's your only day you get to go touring. So scarcity is also, it's not just the snow conditions or the tracks, it's time. You know, if it's up in the mountains, I'm never coming back to this mountain, so we have to summon it now. Or... uh I told myself we're going to do this, these, all these things we tell ourselves about things. And then, yeah, tracked out snow is, is also scarcity where just to get fresh tracks. And, and again, you know, that's another, it's a great example of why Lucas is a great person to go out and ski with because he can make those kind of decisions. But yeah, for me, I think that, like we said, the snow was actually surprisingly good. And it's just, it's a shame that we didn't, have a little bit more time to try to make that summit push because I think that it's definitely the case that a mountain like Dalgiri is not in ski condition every year. I mean, you could go back for the next few years in a row and maybe there's ice halfway up the route. And it was a bummer to see that it was probably totally skiable and, and to have to walk away. And that was hard. But at, at the end of the day, all of the risk factors that we have talked about outweighed that that pull. I appreciate that you connected it as well to local adventures for people at home. Well, maybe it's not the same magnitude. You definitely have these same feelings where, oh, this is my one vacation for the year. This is my one chance to ski this line. And just because it's not as epic of of a pursuit doesn't mean that you still don't get caught up in these same type of pitfalls. 
totally. It's like, it's like that day of the week where you get to go out and, you know, breathe hard and do fun stuff. And increasingly you kind of get that whole situation where if I don't get to the peak by 10, it's going to be skied out. At least that's happening around my house. Oh yeah. Powder frenzy. Yeah. Yeah. Got to get a lighter setup and go a little farther into the back country. Maybe in that case. (laughs) We're on to the last one S for social facilitation. So for example, I don't want to appear like I'm afraid in front of my friends, so I'm going to stick with their decisions. Yeah, that's big. You know, it kind of goes with acceptance. I think you want to be seen as, you know, tough and cool and willing to to go for it. And yeah, I think social situations can can yeah really lead to avalanche accidents. Um, just have to go back to you know making that trip plan in the morning just getting in the habit of making a plan for the day and sticking to it and using the objective mindset. I I think maybe one thing that you can do in terms of like social acceptance is if you are feeling nervous about speaking up or saying that you're uncomfortable, which I think all of us do from time to time, um, is just to ask the other people in the group a question, which is just, can you explain why you think that this is a safe route or this is a safe slope to ski on and i think often that's actually a very difficult question to answer i think a lot of times when people are out there it's it feels right or it feels like it'll be fine is kind of the the answer that you'll commonly hear so i think that just asking the other people in your group to talk a little bit about why they think that the ski plan that you're going for today is a good idea is an easy way to just flush out whether everyone in the group has really thought this through and I think that also asking, uh, did we get away with it today or did we choose terrain that was appropriate for the current conditions? You know, how often are we getting away with it? Are we, you know, maybe pushing it a little bit? The avalanche forecast is that's moderate for the day. So natural avalanches are unlikely, but human triggered avalanches are possible. Um, maybe it's like a scary moderate and you have, there's still slabs around and are we, are we risking that? And so at the end of the day, I also like to ask people that, like, did we get away with it today or do we choose appropriate terrain? Cause you can have fun and low angle powder skiing uh, without risking your life, just choosing the right partners and going out and having fun. And all of this doesn't need to be rigid and informal. You can develop it with your, your partner, your ski partners, and so it's fun, you know, maybe, maybe you have a beer at the end of the day and you talk about it. The more you learn and more you dive into all this, it's really fun. So I'm curious, did either one of you have to actually ask that question of the other? You know, can you please explain why you think this slope is safe? On Dalgiri? Yeah. We did talk about some of the uh, Serac hazard. Yeah, we were definitely like, wow, that one's really big. That would be bad if that came down, (laughs) things like that. I think the other time that we also talked about it was just I mentioned that it snowed quite a bit in between our first and second acclimatization rotation. And so we kind of had to make a decision there about, you know, when are we going to go up now that it's snowed and there's been some slides coming off the mountain. And I think at, at one point we, you know, we decided to wait a day or two, of course, and we had a plan for when we were going to go up. And uh, I think I got up around two in the morning and Luke was standing outside my tent and he said, look, I think we need to give it another day. And that was a tough call to make, um, just given the time pressure that we were under with the weather window. 
again. Yeah, we, we definitely had those conversations. I got to ask, when you're flying home from the Himalaya, did you think about the possibility that someone will go back and ski that peak? I was excited to see my dog. That's what I was thinking about. <laughs> Shout out to Wolfie. So, <laughs> for our listeners, is is sitting very comfortably in a crate in the in the back, sleeping. He must have already had his exercise for the day. Yeah, I think there are uh, there are teams interested in Dalagiri uh, in making that ski descent from the summit. It's not a mountain that can be skied in the spring season. If you look at photographs, there's no snow on the summit. So it's it's really in the autumn season. And yeah, there are people that are, are, are I think, are planning to go and, and try it. I, I would like to go back and, and finish it. So um, I think Ian's. Yeah, that, that thought has crossed my mind quite a few times since since we got home. Many people have tried to ski in the past, and a couple of them have come pretty close. And I think that people will keep trying probably until and probably even after it, it does get skied all the way from the top for the first time. So what are the chances you two will be back there next year? I think we'll go back in September. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you do differently? I probably bring more Snickers this time. <laughs> of course. Yeah. With some yak cheese, that was really good. I'll probably bring an extra block of that and uh, some new music. The music's really old. Yeah. So I thought your musical taste wasn't too bad. That was probably another reason Thanks. I got along. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> was there an anthem for the trip at all? <sighs> a song mm. that you're going to associate with sitting in the tent with Ian for days? Up on the side of Dalgary. The sun will come out tomorrow. Nice. <laughs> never That's what I think, of, I think of base camp. Thank you for joining us, Luke and Ian, and for sharing your story and tips. We are in awe of your accomplishments and the remarkable discipline you showed in your decision on Dalagiri. Now, we actually had Luke on episode 24 of the Out and Back podcast, where we discussed the Himalaya 500. If you want to learn more about that, make sure to check out that episode. And then make sure to check out his website, LukeSmithwick.com, and his Instagram, at Luke underscore Smithwick. And of course, we can't forget Ian. Give him a follow on Instagram at MTNIan, and that's I-A-I-N. So at M-T-N-I-A-I-N. And staying on Instagram, make sure to give us a follow on Instagram at Out and Back Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to swing on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a nice five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And then finally, if you haven't already, make sure to head on over to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to get that 40% discount on a Gaia GPS premium membership through the end of 2021. This is Shanti along with Abby and Mary. Thanks for joining us today and stay safe out there, everyone. We'll see you next time on the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Gaia GPS.